Well, happy Father's Day, everybody. I get to make my Mother's Day, Father's Day joke. Fathers, we would not be here without you. It gets worse every time. I got to get a new Father's Day joke. I'm going to hit up the Google about that. Anyway, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from wherever you are. Thrilled to have you along for the ride. Uh, today, we actually get to continue or conclude a three-part series that we've called Jonah, More Than a Fish Story. And by the way, my uh, digital notes just crashed on me, but I'm old school, and that's why I have paper. So fear not. All is well. So we're finishing up uh, the series, Jonah. And as you've seen, if you've been with us, uh, this series really has never been more relevant than it is right now. And what I want to do is take a few minutes, if you're joining us for the first time, and sort of catch you up on where we've been so far, because each of these talks sort of builds on what came before it. Uh, we begin... Hello. Would you like this? That's okay. Sure? I'm good. Fine. We... <laughs> we it's a well-oiled machine around here. We just like to keep it real, you know? Anyway, uh, we began this series a few weeks ago, um, but now I totally lost my place in my notes. This is... <laughs> we began this series three weeks ago by noting something that's, I think, true for all of us. There's a little bit of Jonah deep inside all of us, because if we're honest, all of us have had seasons in our life where we've sort of run from God. We've reached a moment, maybe it was a, you left high school and went away to college, or you left your college you know, kind of fellowship and moved to a new city, and you were in this new environment, and you sort of made a decision to turn down the volume on your conscience. And, and that enabled you to do some things that during the period of time where you were sort of walking with God, you never would have done. But now in this new phase, in this new season, all of a sudden that became possible. It, it, it's like... Instead of trusting in God's plan, we took matters into our own hands. And if we're honest, you know, down the road, we ended up suffering some consequences for those choices. Maybe we ended up with some regrets or maybe we did some damage in some of our key relationships. We knew that God wanted us to go left and we went right. Or we knew God wanted us to go north and we went south. And, uh, you know, most of us are somewhat familiar with the Jonah story. You know that that was Jonah's story. Uh, I mean, around 750 years before the time of Jesus, one of the authors of the Old Testament account of Jonah's life told us and recorded for us that God essentially comes to this man, Jonah, who's a prophet of God. And prophets are people who speak the words of God to the people of God. And he says to Jonah, listen, I want you to go to this, I want you to go to this town, Nineveh, which is, uh, it was in, is in modern day Iraq. And I want you to tell the people there to turn from their sins. Like the way that they're living is wrong and it's evil and they need to stop sort of or else. And so that seems clear enough, but Jonah receives God's imperative and basically says, no. <laughs> Nineveh was to the east and Jonah went to the west. Nineveh was over land and Jonah got on a boat, which of course sets up that iconic scene in the belly of the whale. Jonah refused to follow God's instructions. And this is important for us to know. Even though Jonah still believed in God, he refused to follow God's instructions. And even though Jonah, as an ancient Israelite, would have organized his life around God's design for ancient Israel. He would have been living out the Ten Commandments. He would have considered himself to be a good human being. And nonetheless, he refused to do what God had told him to do. And God had told him with complete clarity. 
And so, okay, so far uh, in our past two weeks, we've made two profound observations, things that I would argue were true for Jonah, but things that are also very, very true for us. And the first one goes like this. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And that makes sense. If you think about it, I mean, you're free to go your own way. So am I. But when we go our own way, it's impossible to remove ourselves fully from God's presence because he is everywhere. And moreover, he loves us with a relentless, unstoppable, unshakable love that compels him to pursue us, not to pay us back, but to win us back into relationship with him. He wants his children to walk with him. And so that's the first observation. The second one uh, we explored goes like this. Uh, God is generous in his grace and thorough in his discipline. And I don't like this one as much as the first one, do you? But it actually makes sense if you think about it. If God is a, a heavenly father, a perfect father, notice the intentional Father's Day tie-in, right? Then a good father is going to discipline their children. And here's the thing, what's so interesting, if you've had a season when you've run away from God, you can look back on that season and maybe even acknowledge that God's discipline visited you during that season. Maybe at the time you didn't identify it that way, but I think, you know, in my life, it often, uh, God's discipline often takes the form of like a storm of consequences that God allows to blow into my life to sort of awaken me to my rebellion and to remind me that he's with me and that he's for me. And that he still cares about me. It's like God doesn't discipline his kids to pay us back. He disciplines us to win us back. And that certainly was the case in Jonah's story. I mean, that is all over the Jonah narrative. And by the way, Ryan crushed it last week when he was exploring this. Did he not? It was awesome. I was so, I was, yeah, I was like, we were up north. I was teaching at a church up in Petoskey. I know, poor me, small violin, right? Yeah, but um, I was podcasting and I was just thrilled with the way he did it. When, he, when I first told him that he uh, drew the short straw and had to talk about God's discipline, he was like, oh, awesome. Give that to the youth guy. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, but I said, it's a good challenge. Um, but just to acknowledge, like, if this is where the Jonah story ended, it would be a really good story. It's like Jonah runs away from God, God pursues Jonah, gives him a second chance, credits roll, great story, tell it to your kids. But, but as you're going to see today, that really is only half of the story. In fact, as you know, the most famous part of the story is the part that Jonah spends in the fish, but that really isn't the point of the story either. Uh, today, what I want to do with the rest of our time is discover really what message God is trying to give all of us through the Jonah story. And I would argue that that message, again, wasn't just for those people back then, but it's for a lot of us today. And I think it gets us to the heart of why the Jewish people, the ancient Jewish people, told and retold the story of Jonah to their children and still do to this day. I think that the point of the Jonah narrative has everything to do with how God wants his people to think about and to relate to people who aren't yet his people. The point of the Jonah story, you might even say, is intended to challenge those of us who consider ourselves to be, you know, the good church people in our world today 
And, and in fact, um, if you're here and someone dragged you here or you're here with your dad and you don't do church because you like, man, I know church people. And if church people really knew what was going on in my life or really knew what was going on inside of me, they would reject me. So no, thank you. I'll be here. We're going to go out to brunch afterwards and that's it. I'm never coming to church again. I'm actually thrilled that you're here with us today. Like if you're someone who, who thinks, you know, I'd give church a try, but, but they would never like me. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're here because honestly, I'm about to confirm for you that the church is actually full of a bunch of judgmental people. Not you, but maybe a few of the people that, you know, other people that go to church in other places, right? Yeah. What I want to kind of do is I want to talk about that and I, and I want to talk about why I think that's the case and then what we can actually do about it. So I'm going to start with this observation. Uh, many of us who call ourselves Christians, and I obviously throw myself in that pile, um, are relatively good people. Right? You can just ask us, we'll tell you. <laughs> right? I mean, in general, uh, we try to do our best. Uh, we're faithful to our spouses, and we pay our taxes, um, and we try to be honest in our business dealings, and we try to be regular in church because that's why we're church people. And if our kid is on a travel soccer team, and we're in Columbus, Ohio, that den of sin and inequity. <laughs> a little football joke there, all right? Yeah, we tune in online. Like, we are good people. Overall, we try to live a life, not perfectly, but maybe with the trajectory of honoring God's intentions. So like you might even say it this way, we've surrendered to God's moral and ethical will for our lives. That's pretty common with church people. But what's also common, if you start to ask some questions and even pay attention to how we behave, we don't always, we're not always people who have surrendered to God's global purposes. In other words, God's purposes in the world, God's purposes not just in us, but through us. And that, I would argue, is what really is going on when Jonah runs away from God. Moreover, I think that is actually a problem for many Christians today as well. I actually think that's why the church has been sidelined culturally by people who don't consider themselves followers of Jesus. And we're all about keeping our rules and, and being good people, and those are good things, but we really, we really don't always care that much about the rest of the world. It's kind of like the ugly underside of not just of the church, but, but I would say of, of religion. And that's what the rest of Jonah's story forces us to explore. Okay, so we're going to pick up where Ryan left off last week. The author of the Jonah narrative tells us that shortly after being vomited on shore by the great fish, come on, that's awesome, right? Anyway, uh, it tells us this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In other words, God made contact with Jonah and told him something that he needed to do that was just like what he told him to do the first time. Okay, take two. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. And so Jonah does it. Apparently like his time in the belly of the fish has reoriented his heart and now he's willing to obey God. I think I would do the same. So just imagine this with me. Jonah grew up in Israel committed to the law of Moses, committed to being a moral and ethical person. And he walks into one of the worst pagan cities in the ancient world. It was the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were brutal people. And so Jonah immediately finds himself surrounded by this culture that is nothing like he's experienced 
before. He's heard stories, but now he sees it with his own eyes. It's like the people there, they don't know Jonah's God, they don't acknowledge Jonah's God, and they don't follow Jonah's rules. Nonetheless, or nevertheless, and despite all of his personal reservations, Jonah does what God asks him to do. He walks through the city streets and he warns the people to turn away from their sin. And he also says to them, if they refuse, God will send judgment on their city 40 days from that day. And shockingly, the people took Jonah's warning seriously. Here's what the author tells us. He says, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now sackcloth in the ancient world was this public proclamation of repentance. I am reorienting my life in a new direction and I'm sorry for what I did. So um, here's what's fun to think about. You have to wonder why everyone took Jonah so seriously. In fact, check out this next slide. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Like the king humbles himself and publicly apologizes for his behavior. So you got to ask the question, like, why did everyone take Jonah so seriously? It's like, was it a miracle or was there something else going on? Well, what's fun is if you do a cultural study of this time period, what you find is that there were three tribes that had merged right around the time the Jonah narrative is set. And so it's certainly possible there was a fear within the city of Nineveh that these three tribes that had joined forces would soon attack their city. The other thing that you find is that they had just traveled through two devastating plagues followed by a solar eclipse. And these people were hyper-superstitious. So just imagine placing yourself in that environment and then one day a crazy-haired prophet fresh from the belly of a fish walks into your streets with huge bulging eyes and tells you to turn from your sin or else. We don't know that that's what happened, but that's certainly a possible scenario. Uh, what we do know is that upon hearing Jonah's warning, the king of Nineveh proclaims a fast and says everyone must take this message Seriously, this is what the author records as far as the king's words. He says, let everyone call urgently on God. And this is fascinating. Not let everyone call urgently on our gods, but everyone needs to call on Jonah's God, the one God that he says is ruler of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. He says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, he says, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In other words, we need to do everything that we possibly can think of doing to demonstrate to Jonah's God that we're willing to turn from our evil ways. So the proclamation goes out and, and what comes next is actually Absolutely incredible, um, if not entirely surprising. The author tells us, when God saw what they did, in other words, the people repented, they turned from their sin. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And again, this is another one of those things where you, can, you say, okay, if this is where the story of Jonah concluded, you could put a bow on it and be done. Like God sent Jonah, Jonah said no, God gave Jonah a second chance, Jonah went, the people repented, and Jonah felt thankful to be a part of delivering God's mercy to these people. Like good story. It all worked out. 
Um, but, the, you know, Jonah might even say something like, well, God showed mercy to me in the belly of the fish, and so then God showed mercy to the Ninevites. Moral to the story, God is compassionate. Tell the kids, great. But see, that's, that's actually not the point of the story either, even though it's true. In fact, as the story continues, we discover the real reason Jonah ran from God in the first place. And, and, and it, he didn't run because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He ran, he ran because he was afraid of what God would do for the Ninevites if he shared the message that God had sent him to deliver. Seriously, Jonah hated these people because they were wicked and they were violent. They were like his enemies. And, and honestly, at that point in Israel's history, they were sort of God's enemies too. But see, Jonah knew something about God. He knew that God would respond positively to the repentance of the Ninevites. Like if they turned from their sin, he knew that God would respond favorably to them because not only is that what God does, that's who God is. Okay, so at this point, the story takes a really interesting twist. And it's where things get really comfortable for all of us who consider ourselves good church people. So here's what the author tells us. To Jonah, this, meaning God showing them grace and mercy, seemed very wrong, and he became very angry. And he became angry with God because he didn't agree with God honoring the repentance of the Ninevites. In essence, God looks up to the sky, or Jonah looks up to the sky, waves his hands at God and says, listen, you've done the wrong thing. These people have sinned. They deserve to pay for their sin. And so Jonah challenges God directly. And then he says this, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Like when you first said to me, go to Nineveh and preach against it. And I said, no. He says, that's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. That's why I got on the boat. Didn't see the fish thing coming, but that's why I got on the boat. It's like, God, I knew that you were going to do this. Isn't this, oh, I love this story. I knew that if I warned them, and they took me seriously, and I tried not to be too serious, but they still got the message, and they turned away from their sin, you'd forgive them. And I love this. This is, this is what's so fun about the Bible. You would think this is a story that you'd find in the New Testament, right? Because this is in the Old Testament. This is ancient Israel's story. And in fact, if you're the kind of person who struggles reading the Old Testament, because, you know, the God of the Old Testament always seems so wrathful and vengeful, it's like, check out this next verse, because this, Jonah actually records his understanding of God's character 750 years before the time of Jesus. Here's what Jonah says. I knew, God, that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I'm telling you, this actually encapsulates the theme of the book of Jonah. Jonah's, Jonah says, you know, God doesn't want to punish people, even like the worst people in his world, unless he absolutely has to, because his punishment is always redemptive. He's always trying to rescue something. And he's a God whose grace is so big that people really have trouble getting outside of it. And it's like, you can almost hear the tension in Jonah's voice, like, dude, if God's grace can go to the Ninevites, then God's grace can go to anyone. And that was the message. But Jonah is furious at God 
that God wouldn't punish them in the way he thought they deserved. He thought a nice skadoosh from on high and just wipe out the city would be the way to go, right? That's not how it works. In fact, in his anger, Jonah actually makes a demand to God. You're like, how worked up was Jonah about this? He should try the decaf. Here's what he says. Now, Lord, take away my life. Like, for it's better for me to die than to live. And I mean, seriously, the angel in charge of Jonah up in heaven's like, dude, you've got to calm down. Seriously, right? I mean, God shows compassion and you're like, take me out. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. But see, the problem, and this is what this verse illuminates, the problem is going on inside. It's in, it's in Jonah's heart because Jonah had surrendered to the moral and ethical law of God in his life. What God, how God wanted to reshape him on the inside. But he had never submitted himself to being a part of what God wanted to do in the world. And that's why he was so judgmental when it came to other people's sin. And I, I'm telling you, and, and this is not going to surprise anybody, this is what happens to religious people all the time. And it happens without us even trying and I think I know why, just reflecting on my own journey. When someone first becomes a religious people, right, their conversion, our conversion, is often accompanied by this, this shift in perspective and this desire to sort of reimagine our life and our relationships and our conversations and our interactions and our, 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 our generosity in light of our newfound faith and in light of God's will for our lives. And we often have this impulse to like clean up toxic habits and patterns that don't honor God's design. Like, okay, that stuff was a part of my past. Now I understand the love and the grace and acceptance and identity I have in Jesus. And so now I need to sort of begin this process of being recreated along with, with God's spirit in my life. See, but that's all good. It's all very good. But what often happens in religious circles is that we sort of stop short of what God wants to do through us. We don't acknowledge that God's will extends beyond individual behavior modification. He wants to teach us to be a new and better sort of people in the world for the sake of the world. It's like God blesses people in order that they may be a blessing to other people, other people who believe in God and other people who don't yet believe in God. But see, if somebody misses that peace, they often end up being very judgmental towards people who don't live up to their standards. They become judgmental and they become good instead of becoming good and compassionate. And in their relative goodness, they, we, I, forget that we need God's grace as much as everyone else. And I'm telling you, that's why so many people see Christians in our culture as judgmental. And that's why so many people ask, who needs the church? They think to themselves, you know, I already feel bad about myself. And if I go to church and they start judging me, I'm going to feel worse about myself. So why would I go? And they ask these questions because they've been in contact with Christians who were good at being good, but who forgot why God sent Jesus into the world in the first place. In other words, they forgot the character of God. They, they forgot or maybe even never really knew the God that Jonah knew well. Because Jonah is clear. God is gracious and from the perspective of judgmental people, obnoxiously compassionate. I underlined that three times. I like that. Obnoxious. 
He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. That's who he is. And what this means practically is that when people repent, he responds with mercy every single time to every single person. And so the danger of stopping it being just a good church person, and this makes sense, is that we become self-absorbed. And when that happens, like all of our religion becomes about us. And again, we forget God's purposes in the world. And when that happens, we actually can become an obstacle to people coming into contact with the grace of God. And so here's my question for like all of us good church people. Not have we surrendered to God's plan for morality and ethics in our life, but have you ever surrendered to God's purpose purposes in the world? Have you ever opened your hands and opened your heart and basically said, God, I'm available to be an extension of your grace and compassion and love and mercy to anyone with whom my life intersects? Like, have you ever surrendered at that level? I'm telling you, I think if the church, not just Keystone, but the church, capital C, had stayed connected to that mission, we would never have been marginalized by our culture. It's like we'd be front and center because the love and the grace and the compassion of God are almost irresistible. And when compassion and love and grace are demonstrated by people, it's attractive. In fact, the reason many of us follow Jesus isn't because we understood theology. It isn't because we took a class back in college or we sat under a teacher who really helped us understand God. It's like we were won over by the love and the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness and the mercy of God that was demonstrated to us by another person. It was embodied. And the theology, which is important, that came later. It's like that love and grace and compassion and generosity and forgiveness overflowed out of them and washed over us and it left us changed. Like we were drawn to it because something deep within us resonated with it because that is what the creator is like. But see, the minute that we're content to simply be good and obedient, the minute that we stop at just being good church people like Jonah, we forget the purpose of God in the world and become an obstacle to his grace. And I'm convinced that's why God asked Jonah a question and it went like this. Is it right for you to be angry? I think that's one of those great rhetorical questions. Jonah's like, duh, right? Is it right for you to be angry? In other words, Jonah, wasn't it just a few days ago that you needed compassion and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness? Like, and wasn't it a few weeks ago that you needed me to be patient and slow to anger? Like, how in the world is it right for you, of all people, to be angry that I'm gracious to undeserving people? Like, we haven't invented mirrors yet, but if we had, dude, seriously, right? And Jonah doesn't answer the question, which is good. <laughs> Instead, he goes up on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh, and he literally sits there to watch what God is going to do. And I just love that, right? And while he's sitting there, it gets very, very hot. Because as I imagine it, it's summer in the Middle East, right? And so God decides in his wisdom to give Jonah a little bit of an object lesson. I actually think he kind of messes with Jonah here, but that's okay. It's kind of fun. Um, and so God basically sends a vine to grow in order to give Jonah some shade. 
And the author of the Jonah narrative tells us that Jonah loved that vine. He, he loved the vine and all it represented. And then as the story continues, and you can't make this up, God sends a worm to eat the vine and to destroy the vine. And then Jonah gets angry again. And then the author tells us that God sent a wind. And so to review, God sent a storm, a fish, a, a vine, a, a worm, and now a wind, and it's a warm wind, and it drives up an already unbearably hot temperature, even hotter, and Jonah is in absolute misery. And in that moment, God speaks to Jonah, and here's what he says. Is it right for you to be angry about the vine? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. And I'm like, yeah, we need to get him some counseling. <laughs> but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, but though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And Jonah's like, yeah, I remember the worm. And should I, God says here, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Good question. And that's the end of the book. Like, not a great literary style. You turn that in in high school uh, English class, and they'll be like, did you just did you walk, run out of paper? Pet, what's going on, right? It's like a cliffhanger. And you, but, but see, that's the point. See, the children of Israel got this story to tell to their children and to use as a lens to examine their own life. And it's like, Jonah, what are you going to do? And it's like God looks at Israel and says to every one of them, what are you going to do? And then it ends up into our Bible, and it's almost like the question hangs for us as well. What are we going to do? God essentially confronts Jonah and he says, you're, wrong, you're angry about all the wrong things. Like you're a good man, but your life doesn't reflect God's concerns. You think about yourself, but God is concerned about a whole generation of people who are lost in their sin. So just a, a question for all of us. Do you believe that what you're concerned about is in alignment with what God is concerned about? And it's a question for each of us just to wrestle with the ground. Like we think, what, what are the things that sort of amp me up? Or maybe ask the question a different way. You know, what do you get angry about? And I know I dangled a participle there. Sorry about that. What do you get angry about? What are the things that really, really make you angry? Jonah, at the end of the story, is angry about the vine. But what about us? What about followers of Jesus in our world today? I'm telling you, this question really has the power to change things. It has the power to change the way the world sees God, and it has the, the power to change the way the world sees the church. I, I, I've been in church a long time. I've been a pastor for a long time. And I'm telling you, when, when people get a hold of this, it redirects how they spend their time and their talent and their treasures. Because we, we, you, start to, you start to say, man, I'm not here just for me, and I'm not here just to be good. I'm here to do good in the world. And that's one of the reasons, if you've been around Keystone, you know we always are talking about our extend ministries, like local extend and global extend. We never want to be a place that's just about us being gooder. It's not even a word. Sunglasses brand, but not a word. Yeah. But it's like, but, but for us, it's about what good can we do in the world? How can we put a beautiful Jesus on display in the world so that people outside of faith can see how much they're loved by God and how much his mercy and his grace and his compassion is waiting for them.
And so what I'm going to do to close this down today, I'm going to have the band come back out on stage. And I just, I couldn't help myself. I mean, I've, again, I've been in church for a long time. And there's an old song that I just, we couldn't not sing. Um, and it's called Mighty to Save. Remember that one? Somebody go, hmm. Remember that one? Yeah, it's a really good one. If you're like a millennial or a Gen Z or you've never heard of this song before, and you're going to be like, dude, this is an old song. And it is, but it's a good song. It's not like a hymn old song, but it's a like late 90s, early 2000s, before we had the internet, you know, one of those songs. But, but I want to I wanna, I wanna sing this with you because um, the opening lyrics are so profound. I will put them up on the screen. It goes like this. Everyone needs compassion. Everyone, even the people we can't stand, that don't believe the things that we do, everyone needs compassion and a love that's never failing. And then the second verse, everyone needs forgiveness and the kindness of a Savior. The hope of nations. And so I'd love to invite you to stand. And I would love it if we just lifted the roof off this place. Not literally, because then we'd have to rebuild and we just paid it off. But you know what I mean? Like, if, if, if this resonates with you, man, let's do this. And then I'll come back and we'll pray together to close our time.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the love and the grace and the compassion and the mercy and the forgiveness that you've poured out on us through Jesus. And we desire to be that sort of people in the world that don't just receive, but also give. Not only of our finances, but but of that same love and grace and mercy and generosity. I pray that As we try to hold that value here, the light from our community would shine as a beacon of hope in a world that just feels rudderless at times. Thank you. Thank you for showing us who you are and inviting us to follow. It is in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Friends, if you need to pray with someone, we have some volunteers that'll be under this screen. Uh, But otherwise, grace and peace to you. We'll see you back next week.